We are walking through, sometimes we're crawling through this ancient letter. This is one of the most famous letters in all the Bible. It's the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And this next part of the letter, we're starting a new series, this next part of the letter deals specifically with the dangers of comparing ourselves to others. And the verses that we're going to look at today are particularly challenging because in these verses, there's a term that we have to define. Uh, we have to define it because um, it's, it's not one of those terms where you read that, you're like, I have no idea what that means. And so oh, here's the definition. Oh, okay, great. It's, it's worse than that. There's a, there's a term in these verses that is used and we think we know what it means and we're wrong. So we actually have to say, oh, wait, wait, my initial thinking about what this word means, I have to like put that aside and I've got to put a different definition into my head. Plus this passage also assumes a history of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And so we're going to talk about all of that um, and apply it to our lives. And so, but before we read the passage, let me just define this one term. It's the term law. Okay, it's the term law. It's used in different ways. Very often when Paul uses the word law, he is, it means God's covenant with Israel through Moses. So not just the commandments. When we hear the word law, we think the law is on the books. We think the right, the right and wrong. We think God's laws, you have to obey them um, or else. And when Paul uses this term, especially in Romans, most often it refers to the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. So not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole covenant. And that's important. So as we read this and understand it, you'll see why. All right, the passage is in your bulletins. It's also going to be on the screen. This is Romans 7, verses 1 through 4. Friends, listen, this is God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another." to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we have four points today. If you want to take notes, you can write these things down. What we're going to do is we're going to go back and forth from the ancient Israel situation to our situation today. We're going to go from the past to the present, past to the present. Four points. So first point is the covenant married the Jews to comparison. Okay, the covenant married the Jews to comparison. So what do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and he made a covenant with them that was like a marriage. And this covenant, it included the blessings of forgiveness and acceptance. Promises were in this covenant of love and grace and redemption. And it also had a pathway forward for people and for God to live together as a family. And so in this covenant, God adopted them and he blessed them so that they would be a blessing to all the nations. 
And Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, describes this. Let me share that with you. It says, this is God talking, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So this is God's covenant. He set his love on these people, not because of anything they had done, but because he made a promise to their forefathers and because he is love. He set his love on them. Right? And he gave them a mission to share his love and his covenant with the world. Their mission was to be reflections of God on earth with arms of welcome and words of wisdom to help the world know God and to walk with him. That was the design of God's covenant with Israel through Moses. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. What happened was that Israel abused God's covenant. Israel saw all the blessings that they had received from God and they began comparing themselves to the rest of the nations around them. And as they began to compare, they took, man, this is, it's subtle, but you can see it. They took even the words of God and they corrupted them. They took this idea that God said, like, I have chosen you, right? I rescued you from Egypt and I chose you to be my special people, my treasured possession. And they thought, God chose us. God chose us. We're God's chosen people. God didn't choose anybody else. We're better than everyone else. That was their conclusion. Israel concluded that they were better than everyone else because they had this covenant with God. Israel took the gloriously humbling experience of election because that's what it was. I mean, this passage says, I didn't choose you because you were better. In fact, you were the worst. <laughs> And so election was designed by God to be humbling. Like you didn't deserve this, but God chose you because of his goodness, not because of yours. This election was unconditional, right? They, they didn't do anything to deserve this. And so, but they took this humbling experience of election and they became arrogant and they looked down on everyone else. And it was to the point that Israel corrupted the covenant so much that they ended up not being married to God, but being married to sin. In their arrogant comparisons, Israel married sin because to be arrogant is to be married to sin. Jesus even describes um, some of the Jews of his day who were married to this sinful comparing. 
in Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, he says this. He's, this is Jesus. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So these are these folks. And Jesus tells this story so that they could understand where they stood before God. He said this. Two men went up to, into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and the tax collectors were the absolute bottom of the barrel. They were the off-scouring of the world because they were, they were in bed with Rome, and Rome was this oppressive, imperialistic nation or empire that had denigrated the Israelites and was taking money from them through taxes, and the tax collectors were the Jewish people that were on the Roman side and were fleecing the folks. So these were, so you got the top and the bottom of the social hierarchy, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And they both went into the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Yikes, right? He goes on, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And again, Jesus commenting on this story, I tell you, this man the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus is condemning the religious leaders of his day. He's saying that their arrogant comparisons, I mean, not only keep them out of God's family, but they actually keep other people from joining. Because you know people like this, right? Hopefully it's not us. Oh, God help us if it is. Um, but there are people that are, that just, like, they make you not want to go anywhere near whatever they believe. Um, and so Jesus condemns them. Now, why is this relevant to us? Talking about the history of Israel, talking about their covenant relationship, it's relevant to us because we do the same thing. We do the same thing. This is our second point. First point is that the covenant married the Jews to comparison. The second point is that comparison marries us to sin. Comparison marries us to sin. We really do have the same problem because we too spend a lot of our lives comparing ourselves to others. And for us, this is a two-edged sword that we're playing with. It hurts us really in two different ways depending on how we compare. Um, when we're successful, the temptation is to look down on others who aren't as good as us, just like the Jews did. Um, we can sinfully belittle others. We make fun of other people. We use them to feel good about ourselves. You know, well, at least my life isn't like that. Right, at least I'm not like him or her. 
But there's this other side of the comparison coin, right? There's another edge to this sword. When we are failures, the temptation that we feel isn't to arrogance, but when we're not as good in the comparison, the comparison can lead to hopelessness. Comparison can lead to feeling like we just want to give up and not even try. Author and speaker Jordan Peterson, I think, sums this up in the most wonderful way. He says this, he says, none of your cooking recipes cut it these days. None of them cut it in in these days of grapefruit foam and scotch tobacco ice cream. None of your recipes cut it. And you kind of feel this, right? Like you've got recipes that have been handed down from your family, your mom's this, your dad's this, this is what you do, you get the grill, right? But when they're making scotch tobacco ice cream, like what do you have? You've got a fish recipe, right, that has some sauce on it. Right? We live in a world, because we're so highly connected, um, where we are bombarded with like experts, best of the best. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but there have been times when I've wanted to do something and I thought, oh, this would be kind of fun. This would be a good growth thing for me to do, to engage in. And I go online to look up somebody like how to do it or what's a good first step or how do you get enough tools to, you know, together to do this. And then I find a video of someone who has literally spent a thousand hours perfecting this craft. And I'm like, never mind. <laughs> right? Like, why even bother? It'll never look that good. It'll never taste that good. Right? I will never be as good as they are, so why try? And there's this sense of defeat that actually plays a part in our psyche and it causes us to diminish as human beings and to not be the fullness of who we are. We really, literally feel defeated. And there are, I mean, psychological, neurological, chemical changes that happen when we get defeated and we emerge less than the person that we were. For some of us, it can lead to depression. For many of us, it leads to just feeling like there's no reason to try. Jordan Peterson also says, he says, there's this this internal voice inside of our heads that says, no matter how well we do, there's always someone better, always someone more accomplished. Your friends aren't as fat as you. Other people can cook better than you. There's no hope. And that voice will always remind you of your inadequacy. Dang. It's true. This voice of comparison, when we're on the bottom of the comparison, it kills us. It makes us feel defeated, depressed, dejected. I was listening to two famous people this week. Um, talking about their Instagram feeds. These are famous people. These are people that are in, I mean, like the the 1% of famous, you know what I mean? Like they're famous. And one of the people said, I put this thing up on Instagram and after a couple of days, it didn't have very many likes and so I had to take it down. It's like, that's interesting. Huh. Okay, so that's a thing. Like if you're famous... Okay, 
And, and so as I'm processing what I just heard, the other person jumps in and goes, oh yeah, totally. And I was like, oh, so this is like a thing among famous people. Evidently, if part of your fame includes having a worthwhile Instagram account, if you put something up there that doesn't generate enough responses, enough likes, you have to take it down. I'm excited when I get like 30 people that like the fact that me and Ryan are trying to like weld and forge steel in the backyard, you know? I mean, but this is a thing. And it, it, it hit me like, okay, all right, this is, this is what we're talking about. That if they didn't get, I don't know how many thousands of likes would qualify to, to stay up there, but they're so afraid of their image that if somebody were to go to their feed and, because I guess people must do this, they will cycle through, you know, all of their posts and go, this, he only got like 150 likes on this one. This person's a loser. <laughs> and, and I'm not, I mean, I'm making fun of them, but, you know, I'm, I mean, I have wondered why people didn't like stuff I've done, so I'm guilty of this too, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm in a glass house and I'm throwing stones. Throw them back at me, it's fine. Um, the point is that we are we're tempted to compare anything, right? And it's, it's really the comparisons that bother us the most are the things that we value. And so the comparisons that bother you the most, you can, they indicate what you value, what you pay attention to. And so we compare ourselves to others in our jobs with the money that we have, the home that we live in, with our car, our clothes, and our social media accounts. And again, this is a two-edged sword. When we look good in the comparison, we're tempted toward arrogance. Um, when we look bad in the comparison, we're tempted toward hopelessness. Now, here's the thing. Both of these reactions indicate that we are married to sin. Okay? When you feel arrogant or you feel hopeless, you're married to sin. Because arrogance over others when we succeed is sin. We know that. But hopelessness under others when we fail is sin too. Now, my goal here is not to pile on those of us who feel defeated. Like that would just, that's messed up. That's not my goal here. I know you're already feeling less than, you already feel beat up. I'm not trying to add to that. But I'm trying to say that to live in either one of these ways where you are living based on your comparison, man, it misses the mark of Jesus. Okay, the definition of sin actually is to miss the mark. Okay, the image is you've got a bow and arrow and you're aiming at a target, you let it go and the arrow completely misses the target. That's what sin is. And so if you're living in either one of these ways, you are missing the way of Jesus. So I'm saying this again, not to condemn you or to further add to the guilt and the pain that you're experiencing, but rather actually to tell you that, you know what, there's good news, that Jesus has another way of living that sets us free from comparing. It sets us free from comparison. And this is really important. It's not just about, 
not worrying about how many people like your social media account stuff. Like that's, that's not the point here. The point is that there's something underneath the comparing. There's something underneath it because what we compare, like I said, it's an indication of our values, but it's an indication of what we see in the world. Our values shape the things that we see. They shape the world that we see. This is why two people can experience something, come away with very different experiences, very different takes on what they just experienced because they have different values. There's different things. In some ways, there's different ways that they're comparing themselves. And so our values shape the meaning of life. They shape the things that we do and don't do. And we're gonna talk about this in more detail throughout this whole series. But the question for us is then what do we do about this? How do we leave our sin behind in, the, in these two different ways? Well, Paul gives us good news. Paul gives us good news. And in point three, he goes back and he solves the problem for the Jews, okay? So this is his, the Jewish Christian solution. And then we're gonna talk in the fourth point about how it applies to us. But so point three is, in the gospel, Jews died and married Jesus. So in the gospel, Jews died and married Jesus. This is what he says in verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law to that covenant, you've died to that covenant through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So Paul is saying here that, look, the answer for this, to you Jews who have been married to comparing, the answer is that you have died to that covenant. Paul's saying, look, Jesus has brought about a new covenant. And in the new covenant, Membership in that covenant is faith in Jesus. And so he's saying that Jesus, as the Messiah, he came to rescue Israel from their comparison by replacing their covenant. He's saying, you guys are married now to Jesus. He's saying the gospel brings about this deep level transition from the covenant family defined by the Mosaic covenant to the covenant family that's defined by faith in Jesus. He's saying here that when Jesus died, you died with him. He said that in chapter six, verse six, if you remember that. And he's saying here that when you died with Jesus, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So when Jesus was crucified, you were crucified with him and you're now dead to the law that covenant. You're not married to that sinful way of comparing life anymore. And so he's saying, and he has been saying throughout this whole letter, for the Jews, he's saying, look, Jesus came to love all the nations, not just one. In the Jewish way of thinking, God only loved one nation. And if anybody else wanted God's love, they had to become part of the one nation. But in Jesus, he came to love all the nations. Everyone is sinful and needs a savior and Jesus came for the world and all who believe in Jesus are now loved. And so the Jewish Christians in the church needed to hear this and we do too. And we do too because this sets us free from comparison. This is our fourth point that in the gospel, Jesus' approval kills comparison. Jesus' approval kills comparison. And so we go from a life of comparing to a life of being loved by Jesus. 
That's the alternative that comes to us in the gospel. Jesus' approval means that no one else's approval is needed. Because this passage says, it's not just for Jewish Christians, but everyone who trusts Jesus is now married to Jesus. So we too, we are set free from the comparison trap. That's what Paul is saying here. And when we have this, it really does set us free. There's a quote from a Shakespeare play. Um, it's Midsummer Night's Dream. One of the characters in the play is Helena, and she's out in the woods, and someone says to her, what are you doing out here alone? She's with the guy that she loves, okay? She's with the guy that she loves, and this is what she says. She says, for you, in my respect, are all the world then how can it be said I am alone when all the world is here to look on me? The first time I heard this, I thought, oh wait, that's big. And I looked it up and I read it again um, and I thought, oh man, wait, wait, this, there's something really important here. I mean, this is, this is, <laughs> this is romantic love at its pinnacle, right? This is Shakespeare, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on in this play. But if you single out these words, for you and my respect are all the world, then how can it be said I am alone when all the world is here to look on me? Like she's in the, she's in the forest with the one that she loves. There is nothing else that matters. She's in the forest with the one that she loves. There is no one else that matters. Um, if this were written not in 1600s when Shakespeare wrote, but if this were written today, we'd be like, she went on a date and she left her phone in the car. She's with the one that she loves, so she doesn't need to know anything else that's going on in social media, right? She's with this one that she loves, and so she doesn't care if anyone else is trying to connect to her, trying to get a hold of her. Like, this is profound. Do you have anybody in your life that's like this? I mean, think about this. Is there anyone in your life who would, that you would literally say, I don't care about anything else that's going on because I'm with you? Man. You know what I'm going to say, right? In the gospel, friends, like, you're married to Jesus. In the gospel, Gosh, in the gospel, the God who made the world cares about you. Like the God who created everything, who is big enough to hold the, for our intents, you know, infinite universe in the palm of his hand, can somehow, has this crazy Google Maps thing where he can zoom all the way into your life 
and care about everything that's going on in your life. He can see every sin that you commit and then say to you, I still love you. I'm still with you. I approve of you being in my family. You have his approval. He's on your side. You have his presence. You have his friendship. You have his support. You have his wisdom. Nothing else matters. No one else matters. When you're married to Jesus, there is this transition that happens. And when you experience this transition, you know you're married to Jesus. You know you understand the one that you're married to. You know that you understand you're not just part of some church or you're not just like an adherent to a religion, but you know that you have a deep personal relationship with the God of the universe. When you go, when you transfer from fear to assurance, Because the thing that keeps me on my phone is the fear of missing out. The thing that keeps me on my phone, the thing that keeps me distracted, the thing that keeps me always wondering, like, what am I missing out on? It's because I'm afraid I'm missing out on something that could be better than what's in front of me. Or that what's in front of me isn't enough, and I need other things, right? I'm afraid of missing out on something. And so I'm constantly being distracted, right? Or I'm constantly comparing myself to lots and lots of different things, right? Because I'm afraid of not being good enough. I'm afraid of missing out. Those are two different fears that go away when you have a relationship with Jesus because he gives you assurance. When you have to make difficult decisions that no one will understand, when you have to take steps in your life that will make you look foolish in front of others because Jesus wants you to, you have assurance that the only one that matters is on your side. So being married to Jesus means no more comparison to others. He gives us humility and confidence. Humility and confidence. We used to care what other people thought. We used to care how we compared, but now we don't. We don't because Jesus rose from the dead, not us, and we're married to him. Where he is going, where he has gone, we will be someday. And Jesus is also wonderfully patient. I mean, he wants us to grow. He accepts us just as we are, welcomes us with open arms, and all of his energy toward us growing is not so that we'll be like anyone else, It's so that we'll be like him. He's not comparing you to anyone else. And we're gonna talk more about comparison in the weeks to come, but Jesus has this ability to know because he knows not only where you are, but he knows where you've come from. Jesus knows that your present is different from everyone else's present because your past is different from everyone else's past. 
And what's amazing about Jesus is that he's willing to tell you, hey, on a scale of one to a hundred, in this area of your life, you're at like a two. He's willing to tell you that. But then in the same breath, he'll say, hey, in the next three months, let's get to four. Now us, we're at a two and we're comparing to 80, 90, 95, right? Jesus says, look, I know who you are. I know where you are. Let's work on getting to four. This is why I follow him. Man, this is why I feel so encouraged by him. Because he really truly loves us and understands us. He shepherds us and he knows what we can handle and what we can't. And so that's the first transition. You go from fear to assurance. And so if you don't have assurance right now, you might not be married to Jesus. I would say believe in him. Commit your life to Jesus. And a lot of us that do believe in Jesus don't have this sense of assurance. I'm giving you news here that's coming from outside of you. You won't think of this on your own, but you can receive this as the good news of the Bible, that this is what Jesus is like. And if you don't feel assurance from him, then you're not believing in the Jesus of the Bible. And so let your faith grow to include this perspective. And this is what he's like. This is how he treats us. So fear to assurance. The second transition, and this is, this is awesome, is that we go from comparing to serving. We go from comparing to serving. From fear to assurance, this is us and Jesus. And that's kind of it. But when it comes to our relationships with others, like Jesus does send us back into the world. He sends us back into this culture that's frantically comparing in every way, consciously and unconsciously. He knows how difficult it is. And so he gives us assurance so that we can go back into this culture into our city, into our lives, into our friendships, into our families, into our, you know, into all these comparison things. But instead of comparing, we go in now to serve. We go in to serve. And this brings crazy joy. Crazy joy. Because once you stop comparing yourself to others, you can actually spend the rest of your life serving others. Because you don't need to be better than they are you can make them better without anything changing about how Jesus feels about you. And you can engage with other people who are already better than you are. Because chances are they're different and you can learn from them. And so the gospel brings this incredible transition in your heart because you now enter into relationships not for what you can get from them, but for what you can give to them. You don't need to be people, you don't need to be around people who are less than you to feel good because Jesus' love meets that need. And you don't need people who are better than you to affirm you because Jesus, again, you have his affirmation. And this, friends, this is what sets us free from comparing. This sets us free to live for God you can't buy this. You can't achieve enough. You can't get far enough ahead of everybody so that you can finally feel good about yourself because you will work your tail off and you'll always find people that are still farther ahead. 
Because how do you put scotch and tobacco in ice cream anyways, right? Whoever did that, good grief. Um, but you then get, you get freedom to focus on Jesus. Freedom to focus on what he is doing in your life apart from other people. And when you do that, you're off the treadmill. You're off the path of comparison. You're off jealousy because his love has set you free and his relationship, your relationship with him is more important than anything else. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for loving us like this. We would never trust that this could be true if you didn't tell us this. Thank you for setting us free from from comparing, from, from jealousy, from just anything but focusing on you. I pray, Jesus, that for those of us who trust you, that this assurance would find its way deep into our heart and soul, that you would replace the lies that plague so many of us and enslave so many of us. You would set us free. And for those who are here and aren't married to you, Jesus, would you reach out and touch them? Would you propose to them today? Let them know that you have an invitation to leave that rat race, that treadmill of comparison, so that because of your love, we are good enough. Help us to walk with you this week, to be strong enough to serve because of your love. We pray this in your name. Amen.